Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. Started by Padraig Tuma and me, Paul Dorn, in Belfast in 2011. And this is the 10 by 9 podcast. So after 18 months, we returned to live shows in our Belfast home, The Black Box. While there was reduced capacity, there was no shortage of excitement and appreciation for the brilliant stories. Here's Podrick starting the evening off. So you're all very welcome to 10 by 9. It is a joy to have you here. Thanks very much for coming to our 10 by 9 on Gratitude. Um, 10 by 9 is a storytelling event where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their lives. And we've been continuing during COVID on Zoom, which has been lovely. And we've seen lots of you on Zoom, but it is such a joy to be back in the black box. We picked this scene in the very first lockdown, thinking we'd be back here quickly. Turned out we weren't, but we thought, well, it's the same theme. And the theme? Gratitude. Here's our first story in this podcast, and appropriately, it was from a first-timer. Here's Lorna Dunn. The young professional chanted her daily mantra to her diminutive client. Read the letters from the top and keep going as far as you can. My six-year-old nodded agreeably. They're too far away, he protested. Walk a bit closer. He obeyed. Nothing. Another step. Still nothing. With every move forward, The blend of confusion and rising apprehension inside me grew stronger until gradually he stood at arm's length from the board. In a halting voice, he mooted, Eh? It had all started with a routine visit with the school nurse in P2. I ticked the box, sent the letter back and forgot about it. However, the nurse called me to explain that Callum's eyesight had been irregular and so she'd returned to the school solely to check on him. In the intervening fortnight, his eyesight had deteriorated significantly. She didn't know why, nor if his other eye would be affected. As I lay in bed, I started to envision the future. When it comes to your child, this can be a form of self-flagellation. I imagined our sports-mad little boy going blind, walking into things, facing social exclusion. I cried silently every night, trying not to disturb my husband, Stephen. Callum spent his days riding his bike round the farm and laughing uproariously on the trampoline with his sister, Heather. I studied him, constantly wondering, is his other eye going too? Soon, I was observing his slight form being placed on the stretcher of an MRI scanner. He was only half the size of the expected adult body. The scuffed school shoes, a good 40 centimetres from the footrest. He disappeared calmly into the clamorous interior. I'd been for MRIs myself. He received the results in a letter. Not this time. Today, the radiologist ushered me officially into a cramped room. There was no warning, 
The blow came at me from behind. Mrs Dunn, you've probably already worked out that your son has a brain tumour and... I didn't hear the rest. It was obliterated by those two hostile, life-threatening words. Two weeks later, Stephen and I attended the Royal Hospital for sick children. Entering the waiting room, we felt totally inadequate. We stared in horror at calm parents next to children with outsized bandages on their heads, massively swollen foreheads, or those in wheelchairs. Involuntarily, my hand went over my mouth. But Callum was by my side, so I swiftly switched expressions to an artificial smile. The consultant was softly spoken with scruffy hair and bags under his eyes that belied his age. He looked at Callum's notes solemnly, tapping his Lisburn Road leather boots distractedly. Looking at us as if to gauge a response, he started speaking, his sympathetic tone causing us to glance at one another in apprehension. Now, while logic demands that brain tumours cannot disappear, I hadn't yet allowed my mind to travel down that road. When I began hearing phrases like, cut a trap door in his skull, and carry serious risks for your child, I began to quake. All those fears I had tried so fiercely to suppress were gushing out of a fissure inside me like a geezer of tears, suddenly and explosively released. Although we did explain what was happening to Callum, I sometimes wondered how much he understood. I got an idea when I read his school diary the next day. Inexplicably, he'd written, I'm going into hospital next week because I have a sore bottom. <laughs> Days later, I sat in a shambolic hospital playroom staring at the list of potential risks from the planned surgery. Paralysis, blindness, impaired cognition, and finally, death. Would you kindly sign on the line, please, Mrs Dunn? Seriously, was I really expected to sign up to this? However, it was explained that if he didn't have surgery, he'd go blind anyway. Neurosurgery was an immutable, ineluctable wall and we had to get over it. As they wheeled him along to theatre in a trolley, still he was laughing and shouting, faster, as though he was racing his friends on a skateboard. I could barely believe his trusting acceptance of this to us, terrifying scenario. He simply commented ingenuously, I'm a bit nervous about this sleep. And we were gone, entering the hushed, dimmed, leaping world of intensive care, I was again unprepared. A tiny naked body was freakishly wired up to tubes and huge machines which appeared to be taking over a little boy's life force. His head was heavily bandaged and dried blood seeped through. The good eye was a garish purple and sealed shut. Callum's head was twice the size it had been before. Two days later, he lay silently in the ward, <clears throat> his working eye still swollen shut, so effectively blind. A feeble white arm reached out to feel for his dad or me, 
checking that we were still beside him. His hand found mine, desperate for familiarity. He turned his head towards me, but he couldn't see. Usually when Callum cried, there were loud protestations and accompanying howls. Today, he was just too debilitated. It was the complete stillness and silence of those tears that will always stay with me. Silent crystals of desolation. As I drove home shakily from one 24-hour shift in the Belfast Mizzle, the radio sang gently to me. And the tears come streaming down your face When you lose something you can't replace Lights will guide you home And ignite your bones And I will try to fix you wasn't a brain tumour in the end, but a bleed. It was the first good piece of news in months. Thankfully, he retained his sight in the other eye, and he didn't even need glasses. I can never fully express my gratitude to that nurse who came back to check on the one child whose eyesight was a bit off. If she hadn't returned, he'd be blind today. When he came home, we huddled protectively around our slender patient, the four of us at last reunited in front of the fire while our chocolate lab Kelly licked Callum's sleepy face. We were grateful later that year when the school encouraged us to take the summer holiday we'd missed. Being September, the children had the turquoise pool in Kefalonia all to themselves, while I beamed with delight at Stephen over my copy of Captain Corelli. High school brought rugby and the risk of head injuries. We chose not to stop him from playing and were repaid with the exhilaration of seeing his team win the school shield, a first in the school's history. When he lifted that shield aloft with his now muscular, grubby arms, I was amazed that he'd come this far. We also had the joy of watching him leap to victory as the Ulster's under-16 high jump champion. And all that with one eye. Today he's 21 and studying social work. The empathy he displays towards the disabled adults with whom he works makes us so proud. But we're not surprised. He loves that scar. And he has his hair cut very precisely to display it and impress the girls of Dundee. <laughs> Many thanks, Lorna. Truly inspirational. Our next story came from a 10 by 9 regular all the way from West Belfast. Here's Donna Hunter. I finally found the man of my dreams. A strong-armed, handsome, 5 foot 9, salt and pepper, dyslexic, epileptic, with suicidal tendencies. He calls everyone a wee wanker. I reckon you could add Tourette's to the list as wanker. 
is often followed by an explosion of other expletives for no apparent reason. He informs me the word wanker is a form of endearment in his family. <laughs> I had the privilege of meeting said family, the other wee wankers, at my birthday party last April. It was the first time, and hopefully not the last, that I'll hear the happy birthday song sang to me in that way. Happy birthday, wee wanker. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> I turned to his mother and she just shrugged. That's what you, you have to listen to when you've got five boys. As much as Stephen's a joker, he's also seriously good at hiding bouts of, depre of depression. I should actually add joker to his list, an actor to his shining personal attributes, but we all know they're the ones you've got to watch. In the week leading up to my birthday, as he hurried to finish building his gazebo in time for my party, he was struggling with another episode of depression and was gripped by suicidal thoughts. All I saw was this creative genius knocking his pan out, building a gazebo out of pallet wood. Weren't we all? I would never have known he was struggling had he not told me weeks later. I was taken aback when he did. Deeply saddened by the fact that I didn't see it coming. I couldn't tell that his mood had dropped. I thought he was just quietly busy. I felt like I'd failed him in some way by not being able to read the signs. I should have known something was wrong, especially as, as he had confided in me early on in the relationship about his suicidal tendencies and even about his failed attempt the week before we started texting. It's sad to think, had his brother not burst in the door when he did, there wouldn't be an us. Stephen's early revelation didn't deter me from getting to know him, despite it setting off a series of traumatic flashbacks to 2013 when I lost a friend to suicide. Instead, it opened up conversations around the subject. I had so many questions I wanted to ask. I wanted to know what brought him to this point in his life. What set those feelings off? Had he got anyone to talk to? And what help was he getting now? Sadly, he wasn't getting any help or intervention and very few people outside a small number of his family knew about his daily battles. I was determined to hear his story. Among the stories he told me, and the most shocking was a story about having survivor's guilt for surviving a sectarian shooting over 25 years ago. He talked in depth about it and got very emotional. I told him I wanted to help him and for him to get the help he needed. We also chatted about the circumstances surrounding my friend's suicide in 2013. My friend had suffered depression for a very long time before his untimely death. He struggled to get the help he desperately needed and wanted. The system had let him down badly. I didn't want this for Stephen. He listened intently as I recalled how his loss affected me and devastated his family and how it still affects us today. I told him I was stronger for going through the process of healing and getting help to deal with the waves of emotion, the anger, the guilt, not knowing why. I told him that talking about it and counselling would help, and it helped me. It was a conversation we came back to many times over the coming months. As we got to know each other more, our feelings for each other grew. We've been wrapped up in our wee COVID love bubble for months, 
shut off from the distractions of friends and family and even the pubs. We laughed at the weirdness of the outside world and how we came to meet and create our love bubble so soon after meeting, only four weeks after the second lockdown. It was handy we lived close by. In fact, it was a godsend, a lifeline for both of us struggling with our own demons. We were intrigued by each other's backgrounds and stories of growing up. We understood where we were both coming from. We got each other. We joked and complained about how we'd both been unlucky in love and how it was time to change all that. We talked about the future after lockdown. We revelled in our own silliness, danced naked in the kitchen to cheesy tunes with a drink in our hand, but the shadows of the room lit only by a tea light teetering on the edge of a magnet, the side of the fridge. We partied in his newly built cabana, which quickly became our lockdown watering hole. My dog, now a part of the furniture too, thankful for the outdoor space. When I wasn't at the cabana, I was at home pretending to be Nigella, knocking out all sorts of exotic new recipes quicker than a sushi bar turntable. What else was there to do in lockdown? On my nights off, would settle for wine and cheese. The waistline and liver suffered terribly and haven't forgiven me since. Out of all the time we spent in the last year, I'm thankful most of all for the joy and companionship the relationship brought us. We're both as honest and frank as our coffee. The conversations always seem to flow and we continue to have those conversations when the darkness raises its ugly head. I'm grateful that Stephen believed and trusted me when I promised I'm going to help you get the help you need and deserve. I'm proud he took that first step. When you take the time to self-care and love yourself, you really do reap the rewards, and so do those around you. More recently, I'm thankful to hear the refreshing words, I want to stay because of you. He tells me that I ground him. The feeling's mutual. He grounds me. This is my life now. It's raw, it's emotional, and it's filled with laughter and wonder, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm no longer afraid to hear the lyrics to Motorhead's The Game when it comes to that time. I just want more time and endless frank and honest coffee dates. Stephen wanted me to tell you about the shooting. It was a case of mistaken identity and happened a week before his best friend was lured to his death in a sectarian shooting. Stephen, burdened with survivor's guilt and guilt of not being fit enough to carry his best friend's coffin due to his own gunshot wounds since then, the trauma is real and haunts him every night. It's often heard being said to victims, you should be grateful you're alive or you're lucky to be alive. Even you're lucky it wasn't you or don't beat yourself up about it. But no one knows what goes through someone else's mind or what they have done to survive the traumas they went through and face now. Let's be kind and mindful of our words and thankful for the right person in our lives. What a wonderful, heartwarming tale. Thanks so much, Donna, and best wishes to you and Stephen. Uh, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our costs. We're so thankful to everyone who has donated. 
or you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10by9.com. That is story at 10by9.com. Equally, you can just sit back and support us by turning up, by listening and enjoying. Okay, next up is Paul Brady. Paul is a strapping six foot four fella and he finished off our evening with this brilliant tale. Prepare to laugh a lot. Thank you, sweet Jesus, thank you. As I stood gripping the roof bars of the car, face to the heavens, well, actually to the underside of the next floor up of the hospital's multi-storey car park, this uncharacteristically religious-themed outburst was shouted at full volume. The echo of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Made other car park users look over at me briefly and then look down at the ground, assume that I had received some good medical news but not wanting to intrude. The fact of the matter was that I had actually received some good medical news, not but 10 minutes previously, but it had been overshadowed by some even better news that had happened in the minutes since. So many things to be grateful for all rolled into one morning, a veritable gratitude wrap, as it were. Six months previously, I'd attended my GP for a recurrent stomach issue. Debilitating cramps and pains would render me unable to go to work or to leave the house. We started down a course of appointments to rule various things out. Blood tests, all clear. An ECG to make sure it wasn't my heart, all clear. An endoscopy, where a thin tube with a camera and a torch on the end of it is pushed down your gag and throat into your stomach to check for ulcers and hernias and all that kind of thing, all clear. By the way, if you can avoid this particular examination by eating well and getting a wee bit of exercise, I heartily advise you to do so. It is the most unpleasant and embarrassing procedure that I've ever had. Or so I thought. <laughs> well, I've exhausted almost every test and found nothing so far, so there's really only one thing left to do. My what are you talking about face made the doctor continue. Well, you've had your endoscopy where the camera goes down your throat. He paused a little too long. <laughs> this time the camera will approach the problem from the other end. Oh, I said. Indeed, he said. Three weeks later, I pulled into the multi-story and tried to gather my thoughts. With the help of the internet and three weeks of vast medical knowledge, I now knew for a fact that I had bowel cancer and this test was just a formality. I practiced how heroically upbeat I was going to be when I told the Duchess the bad news. The smiling receptionist looked at my letter and told me to take the lift to the ninth floor. After a few minutes, wait, a very pleasant nurse confirmed my name and brought me to a small treatment room where a doctor sat at a desk beside a trolley bed, some sort of medical viewing station, and one of those frames with a handle on it that you roll up your garden hose with. The garden hose was wrapped up in it. It was weirdly out of place, or so I thought. The doctor ran through a few basic health questions and finished with the rather vague but scary, and if we do find anything in there that's worth worrying about, we'll get that confirmed in a week or two and get you back in to discuss your options going forward. I swallowed. Don't panic, big man. No news is good news. So if you could just get up on the bed there and lower your jeans and your underpants and turn on your side to face the wall. I remember how much I really hate the word underpants especially in a clinical situation. <laughs> That's great. Now, if you can pull your knees up as far as you can towards your, ch your chest as you comfortably can, nothing about this was comfortable. 
I closed my eyes and tried not to think about it. The nurse re-entered the room and spoke in hushed tones to the doctor. I imagined some in-joke being mouthed between the two of them when my back was turned and I squeezed my eyes even closer to blank it out. This may be a little uncomfortable, but just try and relax. A cold, lubricated, gloved finger was inserted into my rectum and kind of wiggled around. I didn't think it could get my eyes closed any tighter. Then all of a sudden they were wide open. It seemed that while my back was turned, they had removed the garden hose from the room and instead went out into the hall and unwound that big red fire hose from the wall, brought it back into the room and inserted it into my now overly lubed rear end. I couldn't help but get a little whimper out as what seemed like an underground trunk cable was pushed with a fair degree of upper body strength into my upper inner space. The doctor and myself fell into a kind of a natural rhythm over the next 10 minutes, or what felt like about seven years. As he breathed in and prepared for another short push, I breathed out and did my best to relax and allow the violation to continue. Eventually, he stopped pushing and sat back for a rest. Okay, he said, this next bit can be somewhat uncomfortable. The next bit is uncomfortable. I was trying to be funny, but I heard myself. I just sounded afraid. The nurse came around to my side of the bed and asked in her softest nurse voice, would you like me to hold your hand, pet? No, I'm good, I said. But if you could get your man to stop shoving that fire hose up my arse, I'd be really grateful. Okay, he said. Here we go. There was a hissing sound. I really don't know how to explain what happened next, except to explain exactly what happened next. They pumped me full of air via the butt hose. I couldn't truthfully say it was painful, per se, but to this day, I don't think I've ever been un as uncomfortable again. They literally pump you up like a balloon from the inside. You feel like you might explode, but you don't care. It would be a blessed relief. There was a few minutes of examination, and then a slightly too chipper, okay then, that's us all done. You'll be happy to know that the removing of the camera is nowhere as near as a taxing as inserting it. It was then that I found out what the handle on the hose holder was for. Like a sailor on one of those cross-Atlantic boat races, he gave it two or three fast spins, and I could feel the hose withdrawing its speed from my insides to the outside world again. I felt like I was being turned inside out. If you want to get yourself dressed again and come over to the screen, I'll show you what we found. My heart sank. I stood up at the side of the bed, pulled up my cacks. I'm not using that word on the pants again. As I went to move towards the doctor, it suddenly felt like someone had reached inside my stomach, grabbed a handful of it and twisted it as hard as they could. I winced with the pain of it, but powered through. I'll confirm in a few days, but I can't see anything there to be concerned about. Everything looks nice and healthy, said the doc in the background. 
I didn't hear what he said next. Inside my head, a voice was shouting, yes, no cancer. Then the voice went kind of quiet and said, here, big man, by the way, I think you're going to shit yourself. <laughs> the voice had a point. I filled with a white hot panic. Sweat instantly broke out on my forehead. I mumbled the words, thanks to the doctor, and hurriedly left the room. In the years since, I've consoled myself that he probably witnessed my apparent rudeness on numerous occasions as various anally intruded middle-aged men couldn't get out of his office quick enough. Once outside the room, my fighter flight brain kicked into overdrive. My fighter flight brain is from West Belfast. It's not posh like me anymore. Toilet, it screamed, nah! I ran from the knees down to the lifts. Both were floors and floors away and moving very slowly upwards one flashing number at a time. Stirs, nay, screamed my brain. I've often thought if they ever made an Olympic event out of coming down 18 flights of stairs with your knees together, I would probably make the podium. As I reached the ground floor, I looked feverishly for the public toilet. I spotted it through my sweat-filled eyes and also the large queue of people that was formed outside it. Decorum prevents me from laying what my brain screamed next about the people in the queue. But it ended with, just get to the car. At least your shame will be private. <laughs> I rushed across the lobby, down another flight of stairs, outside of the car park, whispered myself the whole time, not yet, please God, not yet. It flashed across my mind that the dreaded conversation with the Duchess was now going to take on a weird turn. As I rushed past her when I eventually got home straight to the bathroom, she's going to think I'm being unusually dramatic. So the news must be terrible. And I'm going to have to tell her through the door with my scundered face in my hands. Listen, there's good news and there's bad news. As I got to the car, my sweaty, fumbling hands dropped the keys on the ground. A horrific realisation came to me. I wasn't making it. The twisting in my gut was now unbearable. I was just going to have to let go and suffer the consequences. I held onto the roof bars of the car and closed my eyes. I've often imagined since Norris McWhorter from the Guinness Book of Records kneeling beside me with a stopwatch timing the exact length of time it took for the complete expulsion of all the air that was trapped inside me. It all came out in one giant, long, ghostly sigh. I estimate about 20 seconds worth, which I know doesn't seem like much, but the next time you're on your own, try breathing out for 20 seconds. And that was it, nothing else. No follow through, no humiliation, well, no further humiliation. 
I turned my face skyward and shouted at the top of my lungs, thank you, sweet Jesus. Thank you. Thanks so much, Paul. Where would 10 by 9 be without bodily functions? Indeed. Where would we be? Anyway, thanks so much for that great story, Paul. What a brilliant way to see out the evening. And that is it for this podcast. You can get in touch with us on social media, email, or via our website, 10by9.com. We love hearing from you. This podcast is a 10 by 9 production. And if you ever wondered who makes our amazing and hilarious posters, that's the brilliant Padre Kutuma. But we finish the podcast with a massive thank you. For now, bye-bye. During the last 18 months, as we mentioned, we were on Zoom, and we had a wonderful time, and it was a great Certainly for me personally, it was a great highlight during that, that sometimes bleak period. And I have a real thing that everybody deserves their applause from if they've told a story. And of course, that's something that we never really had on Zoom. So I'm just going to give you a rundown of some of the people who, who told stories, who took part. The great thing was they came from all over the world. So in Ireland, people who we haven't had to Belfast, Sue Divin, Mary Johnson, Darius Whelan, Sinead Davies, David Simpson and Bridge McGinley. From England, we had Ruth McCone, Carolyn Beck, Cathy Ritchie, Killian Faith Kelly, Sinead Gary, Jacqueline Gale, Sukdeek Singh and Paul Brazel, who actually told his story from a yacht that he uh, lives on. So how fancy is that? There's a special shout out for our Scottish friend, Gita Meaton. If any of you were on the Zooms where Gita told stories, she's an exceptional, exceptional storyteller. You can find her on some of our podcasts uh, and she's up there on the YouTube channel and she is just brilliant. From the USA, we had Soma Hunter, Connie Phelps, Darren Chittick, Catherine Galvin, Matthew Mercier, Sarah Damewood, Paul Normandin, Kathleen Harris, Susan Schaefer, Rebecca Jane, Kathy Ayres and Stephanie Levy. From Canada, Kevin McGlade, Elizabeth Barnard, Stuart Lewis, Kevin Makins. From Germany, Stephen Ebbinghaus, so he's from here originally. Katerina Hart joined us from the Netherlands. And Devangana Mishri joined us from India. And that was our, uh, I think, probably furthest away person. Although we did have people who also uh, tuned in from various parts of Europe and also Iran. And we used to stay on Zoom afterwards and have a little chat, so I just want to even though they can't hear us, I just want to say a big thanks to Meg Ibe, Janet Craker and David Lavery because many of them gave uh, via Patreon to 10 by 9 and that really helped keep us going. Could I ask you please for a big round of applause for all of those people, please. <laughs>